Hi, I'm Lucy Adams from Disruptive HR. Welcome to one of our podcast series where you'll hear from HR practitioners who are genuinely doing things differently. If you're looking to change your HR practices, then why not check out the Disruptive HR Club? It's got tons of videos, webinars and downloadable guides that will give you all the ideas and practical help you'll need. Check it out at www.disruptivehr.club. So hello and welcome to another podcast with Disruptive HR. And this one's slightly different in that my guest today doesn't have an HR background, but in the times that we work together has always shown an interest in the people side of leadership. So a big welcome to Aidan Geary. Hi, Aidan. Hi, Lucy. How are you? I'm all right. I'm all right. How are you? Very good. Thank you. Nice to join you. Yeah, it's lovely, lovely to see you, albeit on Zoom, and uh, because obviously we're doing this in the middle of lockdown. Now, your title is Director of Operations for Condé Nast, but you're based out of the London HQ. Can you just tell us a little bit about your role there and just kind of some key points of the, the kind of stuff that you're doing right now? Sure. So um, Condé Nast, as I'm sure most people will be aware, is a big magazine publisher. Um, we have some of the probably the best known magazine titles that people will have come across like Vogue, Vanity Fair, GQ, um, and in, in the US, The New Yorker as well, amongst many, many others. Um, and we're right in the middle at the moment of merging two companies. So merging what used to be the old international company and the old US company that was focused exclusively on the US. And we're bringing them together as one company at the moment. And that's probably been our really big focus in the last kind of 12 months or so, 12, 13 months. Um, and then, of course, right in the middle of that, three months ago, four months ago, coronavirus came along and uh, made merging two companies, <laughs> big international company spread across 11, uh, 12 um, countries across the world, somewhat more complicated. as you Yeah, think. like if it wasn't difficult enough. Right. And so first up, really banal question. Is it as glamorous as we would imagine it to be? You know, you're dealing with Vogue, you know, all the kind of fashion industry. Is it a glamorous role? Is it a glamorous job? Of course it is. <laughs> <laughs> I'd, have, I'd have to say yes, wouldn't I? But you see, the thing is, Lisa, you, you are also a media person. You worked in the BBC and you yeah. know that um, the BBC has lots of glamour and lots of excitement as indeed does Condé Nast, but also it has lots of people who are just getting on and doing the job of making, yeah. you know, a, a broadcaster work or making a magazine publisher work and all of the, you know, the normal kind of like graft and just yeah. work that goes with that. And I think, you know, um, one of the things we were, I, mean, I wonder whether you experienced this, but, you know, at the BBC, we never had any trouble getting people to apply to us. You know, I mean, you know, you'd put a job advert out, you would be inundated um, because obviously it has an image. The BBC is an incredible brand, as, do, as does Condé Nast. But quite often people's expectations of it being this kind of beautiful media world weren't always realised when actually you kind of had that because of course you got the nuts and bolts of it as well. Absolutely that. I mean, we're every every role that we post, we're inundated with applications for it. And I think one of the interesting things is that people have an idea in their minds that they want to work for Condé Nast, and it's a it's a strange thing. I, I find it a strange thing um, where people will apply for quite literally any role, whether or not they are qualified for the yeah. role, because yeah. they have a passion for working on. Vogue or working on one of our titles or working for Condé Nast as a, as a publisher. People do have a very, a very 
I suppose maybe in some ways a very rosy view of what that world is like and a very, it's a glamorous sounding and a glamorous looking world. And, and there is a lot of that, there's no question. So we, we certainly get that, absolutely. So your role is, has been, you know, initially, I think, and then, um, you know, it's been to a large part dominated by this move to digital. So just explain a little bit about that, because obviously we're used to seeing the magazines in, you know, airports and in our news agents and so on. But but there has been a real drive, hasn't there, to move uh, the publications into a more digital space. Just explain what what that looks like. Sure. So the 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 background to this, I suppose, is a bit like the background for most of the of the sort of publishing industry, whether it's books initially or newspapers subsequently. I also spend quite a lot of time working at The Guardian, um, so know that newspaper world quite well. And then, to some extent, a bit, a bit later, um, magazines. The, the disruption that we all kind of talked about and, and thought about, and in some ways now it feels very sort of old-fashioned to be talking about digital disruption. <laughs> yeah. Disruption of, of a few months ago is like so boring, it's isn't exactly it? It's right. so stable and boring. Exactly, and it, it, sort of, it goes back, you know, nearly probably 20 years at this point where, where newspapers and books were starting to be really massively disrupted by the likes of, uh, you know, on, online news publishing or the likes of Twitter, for example, for breaking news, or in the book world, the likes of, of Kindle and the, and the sort of e-readers. And in a funny kind of a way, I think magazines for, for quite a long time managed, particularly sort of luxury type magazines, um, the, the sort of the beautiful physical product that is a really beautiful glossy magazine that's really beautifully yeah. produced when you turn the pages. It seemed to kind of buck the trend, but but obviously the the, the, the digital world has caught up with or caught up with um, magazines over that time as well, as was inevitable. And I think I remember at one stage, thinking television seemed like it was immune, but of course, you know as well as I do, yeah. the TV world was equally very, very dramatically disrupted by, um, by, by just by change, by digital change. So when when I joined Condé Nast four years ago, and my my, uh, my boss, um, Wolfgang Blau, who had joined about a year or so before that, the, the agenda really was to look at the business, the magazine publishing business, which was in the international context at that time, very much focused, not exclusively on, on the physical, magazine on the physical book, but but that was really what dominated it um, from a business perspective. And there was, a, I think, a general understanding, a recognition that, that the tidal wave of, of, of disruption and a change in, in publishing had caught up with magazines and we needed to do something about that very, very quickly. And so that was the, that was the kind of agenda at the time, the driver at the time. And that's continued to be a really, really significant um, driver. It's not to say that, that um, the print side of things isn't incredibly important it remains hugely important as you said when, when you think about a title like vogue what you think about is picking it up in, in an airport or, yeah. in, or yeah. a railway station or something that's you know or, or a newsstand somewhere that's what you think about the, the physical magazine um but increasingly our audiences are uh, as as in all media our audiences are consuming the the content and finding the content across a whole range of different platforms the physical book and also many other digital platforms as well. And our advertisers and our, our clients increasingly want to have and need to have digital, video, social as part of the mix for obvious reasons. And what has that meant then for the, the, the people implications? I mean, you know, the obvious one, I suppose, is new skills and capabilities, is that you're not just looking for fashion journalists, but you're looking for people with digital capability who want to work in that environment. But what, are, what perhaps about some of the other 
uh, implications for your people, particularly the ones who were there before, who perhaps came from the traditional background? How have they had to adapt? I think it's a, it's such a fascinating question because it's not simply a question about capabilities, as you as you suggested. You can bring in digital capabilities if you need if you need skilled digital technologists, for example. You can find those people and you can bring them into an organization. I think the the, the real challenge for an organization, the digital challenge for an organization like like Condé Nast or the, or the kinds of titles that we have, was to was to think how do you how do you bring a title, an iconic title like Vogue, for example, to life in a digital space when when Vogue, as you said a moment ago, it, it is it is the magazine. It's what people think when they think of, of a title like Vogue. How do you bring that to life on a website? How do you bring it to life on a social media platform? Um, and I think it's you can't just bring in digital skills to do that. You have to have the digital skills, of course you do, but you also have to work with the people who know the brand yeah. so well who know the dna of the brand who who live and breathe it every day and and work with those the kind of those two groups if you like to to bring the brand to life in a way that makes sense on a new platform and makes sense for an audience that might not actually be the traditional uh, magazine buying audience for example and there's a real art in that i don't think that's something that you just sort of like bring in capabilities no. and plant them into a company and they're you know you sort of magically have uh, a great digital experience or a great digital or, or, or new rendering of your brand. I think it's a there's a real art in bringing those worlds together and making them work effectively together. Other, other uh, companies that, that I've met that are worked with that are uh, trying to, you know, blend and merge the perhaps legacy traditional skills and capabilities with digital have talked about the need for a curiosity about the traditional and the legacy on the part of the digital um you know the new ones the new the new uh, generation that are coming in um and a respect for that as well is that something that you've had to work at or has that just happened automatically i, I think it's a really brilliant point because i think it's so true that that curiosity and respect for what what you might disparagingly call the legacy business. And yeah. I think sometimes you get that with people who people who have no interest in the legacy business. The truth is that the legacy business is the business. But yeah. you know, yeah. the, the you want to, to characterize it like that is the brand. And I think unless you have respect for that and interest in it and curiosity and I suppose a kind of an awareness of why it is as important as it is, then I think it's actually probably very hard or just very hard, maybe not hard to work in the organization, but certainly hard to engage with, with yeah. what it's about. And when we when we moved, we moved buildings about kind of two and a half, three years ago um, from a, a very small office where we were because we were growing very quickly into the um, the office where we are now that you 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 saw both, Lucy, if I recall. Yeah. Um, and we were we were very conscious when we were designing the new building that we were going to be putting a lot of um, digitally skilled people mm -hmm. into that space. But we were also going to be putting editorial people into that space and we really wanted to bring those two together in the physical space so when when you come into the building into the into the reception area there is a, a sort of digital screen but there's also a magazine wall yeah. <laughs> around the world and when you then go into the sort of the main um um sort of um, social area meeting area in the middle of the building as, as you'll recall there's, there's a huge digital screen where we have a uh, sort of bleacher type seats that people can we, we use it for town halls and, and events and that kind of thing but right beside that we also have the library where we have the catalog of all of our titles 
from every country around the world going back. They, they all go back at least a year and then they're archived. But you, you, you have that, those two things being brought together. And it was actually terribly important for us that we had the, the, the physical magazine and yeah. the digital world together in the same space, occupying the same space. What about um, another aspect that, you know, my, my sense is that the, perhaps the editors of, of the Vogue's, you know, the, the big, the big magazine editors who were these, you know, kind of incredibly powerful individuals, have they had to, you know, the leadership teams of, of these, of these individual brands, you know, the, the Italian Vogue, the French Vogue, the uh, UK Vogue, have they had to collaborate far more and work differently? Has that been a challenge? They are collaborating more. I don't know that it has been a challenge necessarily, because I think there's a real openness to collaboration. I think, you know, my, my sort of observation about editors would be, you don't get to be a, a, a senior editor on, on a, whether it's a TV program or a, a newspaper or, or a magazine without being fantastically innovative. It just doesn't happen. You, you, you'd have to be constantly innovating mm. and, and reimagining what your, what your title is. And, yeah. you know, if you think about how, how sort of cyclical um, publishing is, whether it's in the newspaper business or in the magazine business, you can't do the same thing every month or every year on the same anniversary. You have to be constantly innovating and constantly thinking differently. So I don't think that the idea of innovation on different platforms comes as, um, as, a, as a shock or as a surprise to, um, to editors and to those editors. I think there's a real openness to it. And you know, so many of them have been doing things before, before the digital world, so many of them have been doing innovative things in, in terms of bringing their their titles to to life in different spaces so we think about like events for example um as a way where where the the magazine becomes alive in the real world for people at a, at a space and at a time and i think that that's just i mean to be one sort of random example yeah so I, I i'm not sure that it's been i mean of course it comes with challenges um and adapting to new platforms comes with challenges we all find change you know, more or less challenging to a greater or lesser extent. Of we do, and um, so I don't want to sort of gloss over that and say that there were no challenges, most certainly. Yeah. But I think the idea that that these people somehow are sort of like totally fixed, stuck in the past with their their feet in the mud. That, that's I don't recognise that. I have to say. Oh, it's good to good to hear. Now, obviously, we're in lockdown at the moment. We're doing this via Zoom, and ordinarily, I'd be coming along to your office in London, sitting down and chatting with you. But I'd be really fascinated, firstly, just to hear about the lockdown experience that you guys have been having. And um, as I mentioned to you when we talked about doing this podcast, we are trying to help articulate what um, not just returning to normal looks like as things as lockdown begins to ease at uh, you know, varying uh, paces across the world, but that actually we articulate and design something that's better. So it's not just returning to normal, but we're creating, you know, we want to go with kind of better normal. So could you just talk a bit about the Condé Nast lockdown experience, how what it looked like and felt like for you guys? But also then, from your perspective, the, the things that you've seen, perhaps that have surprised you, that you either want to make sure that you continue to embed as you go forward into the new normal, or maybe you even stop some stuff, I don't know. But let's just do those two things. And first up, the, the lockdown experience, and then how do you want things to change when things go back to normal? 
So the lockdown experience for me has been quite an intense experience um, because I've ended up being the coordinator for our... our, our <laughs> you, you always get these jobs, fun. don't you? Indeed, quite. <laughs> I think in a funny way, it sounds strange, but we had the benefit of seeing very early on what was going on in China and how we needed to respond in China because Content Nest has a, has a business in China, has a presence in China. And obviously they were at the, at the forefront of this. And just as their Chinese New Year uh, holiday was beginning in uh, late January, if I recall correctly, very beginning of February, the, the government in China was imposing all kinds of restrictions on movement. And uh, we were hearing obviously about the city of Wuhan being locked down. And then um, people who were traveling for the New Year holiday were told they must stay in place and they were not allowed to travel, to travel back to the yeah. cities they had come from. So we found ourselves with our, our Chinese colleagues effectively locked out of the office or, or told that they weren't going to be able to come into the office for, at that time, what we all recognised was going to be a kind of an indefinite period of time because there was no knowing exactly when the end of that was going to be. But they didn't even get much of a warning then? Very little. Right, okay. Um, and of course it all coincided with the holiday when, I mean, the equivalent of their sort of Christmas and New Year holidays, I guess, when they would have been, wow. you know, many people would have been scattered and and dispersing and the office will be closed for several days anyway. Yeah. I think we're, we're lucky that we have a very innovative team in, in China and there were some things that they did that I, working closely with them, I picked up and I thought I realised that there, there are techniques that they are developing there that we can use elsewhere in the event that we needed to use these techniques elsewhere. So there was a really small, simple thing that they did where they just looked team by team who could work from home and who couldn't and those who couldn't, why not? Very simple thing, they go through title by title or department by department, and they just say, this many people, and this proportion of them can work from home, and this proportion or this number can't because they don't have a laptop or because they rely on a system that is only available in the office or whatever other reason might have been. And they were able, they were able to use that to zero in on the, the issues. So rather than thinking, how on earth do we get 400 people to work from home overnight? when we've never done this before. They were able to zero in on the issues where they had two people here or four people here or six people here. How do we get these two people or six people working from home? Because the other 300 odd actually are okay. We can, we, we can make it work. Yeah. So it really helped them to zero in on the, on the issues that they needed to fix. And I took that technique that they had, that it was just a very simple spreadsheet that they had developed. And I asked the, the operations leads or the finance leads in all of our other companies in around the world to do exactly that exercise just to go through to and when were you doing this this was in february wow so you were really um ahead of the game because i don't think any of us in uh the western democracies you know were were getting our heads around that they all thought i was mad they all thought i was mad <laughs> really? really yeah <laughs> was, i can believe it we, i mean i you know we just weren't having those conversations no, were we at exactly that and we're I, I was saying earlier we're in the middle of this of merging two companies there's and there's a lot of work that goes with that and there's a lot of information that is needed to, to be drawn out a lot of discussions that are going on associated with that and into that i then through these spreadsheet at everybody and say, do me a favor, just work out how many people can work from home and how many people can't. And I think a lot of a lot of the response was as if. You know, yeah, like all, you we have all these other things, really, you know, we'll 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 sort of get to it. Um, people did the exercise and I think it was very instructive because people realized where their own problem areas were. 
And it was only, I mean, you, you recall February, it, really, it was really almost day by day that we were starting to realize, yeah. certainly by the latter half of February, that the coronavirus problem was not going to be a China problem. It was going to be a, a, yeah. much, a much bigger problem than that. Um, we then took that to the next step and we asked that people rehearse or test having their entire staff working from home. That they pick a day or, or two days, um, many places picked a Thursday or a Friday. Um, and then we said, try it out. Send everybody at home on Wednesday evening and say, tomorrow you're going to work from home and see what works and see what doesn't work. Because again, you'll flush out the systems that don't work or yeah. people have forgotten to log into their computer or somebody you know, installed two-factor authentication so that they would access the system and then they've forgotten how to, how to use the system. And we just flushed out a lot of those, a lot of those teething problems very early on through these rehearsals. Um, the, the, you know, the, these kinds of exercises, so that when it came to having to close offices, it was actually, it wasn't that it was more straightforward, but it was, we were prepared for it in a way, and people were prepared for it in a way that... And as you think, say, you knew where the issues were going to be, and you'd had the time to at least think around those issues, even if you couldn't meet, mitigate them completely. Yeah, and the issues, it was very fascinating. The issues came down consistently to two... Um, two key problems. The first was that people didn't have equipment that they could use, so they didn't have laptops or personal computers. Yeah. Uh, and the second was systems which were only accessible in the offices and not accessible through people's home Wi-Fi or whatever. And uh, I, I, I have to call out our, our technology teams around the world who just did the most extraordinary job at making systems available. Almost overnight, things that were that were available only in the office became available on VPNs or available on on the internet yeah. or whatever. Um, and likewise, I don't know how many laptops we had to order, but we sort of ordered as many as we could and then just gave them to people. And yeah. then when that didn't work, because people needed like designers, for example, who would need big screens or who would be working with files, yeah. we we simply shipped the machines home to their houses. We we took the machines yeah. off their desks and they packed them up and then they put them into taxis or whatever and got them to people's houses so that people could continue to work. So th those problems were by, by, by having a, an upfront view of the problem areas, we were able to really zero in on those areas and then find ways to, to fix them. Ways that we didn't necessarily, wouldn't necessarily have thought beforehand were sensible things to do. So let's turn to the second part of the question, which is either as a leader yourself or things that you've observed in other leaders around you. What do you think we need to maintain or stop or create differently when we go, I don't want to say back to normal, but when we go whatever the new normal is? It's a really, such an interesting question. And I think so many people are, are challenging themselves and thinking about exactly this question at the moment, because every one of us is dealing with the practical realities of everybody being remote, the practical realities of people having to come back into the offices and so on. I think it's it's easy in some ways to, to be consumed by the practical day-to-day -day realities of, of what that's going to mean. And I, I keep on coming back to actually quite an abstract thought. Um, I was talking to somebody in, in work a week or two after we had closed all, because we, we had closed all of our offices effectively in a sequence, as you were saying, you know, uh, another um, person that you know had, had seen shutdown in China and then Europe and then America and it, it sort of seemed to go in a, in a wave if you like from east to west these shutdowns and, and everybody working from home there was a point where all of our staff continent staff around the world were working remotely and I was talking to a colleague in work and I was remarking how 
kind of extraordinary it was that things that we would have thought only a month previously were inconceivable or were actually properly impossible mm. had now been in, put in place and had become our reality, our day-to-day reality. And it struck me, it strikes me, it's the, it's the thought that I keep on coming back to, this, this abstract thought that the inconceivable or the possible is what, the impossible rather, is what we're doing now. Yeah. So, and I, I, there's something about that that I really want to hold on to, the idea that, you know, if six months ago I had said to everybody, rehearse working from home, they would have said that's impossible. Mm-hmm. It can't be done. It's just, it's not practical. It's not practically possible to do it. And yet here we are. And it seems to me that there is something incredibly enabling and empowering about that level of adaptability where none of us chose to do this, but we had to. And because we had to, we adapted to it. And I would love if we could hold on to some of that sense of the possibility of, of adapting and of being flexible and of, of, of now and again, just putting the inconceivable or the impossible to one side and saying, let's try it anyway, let's do it anyway. Yeah. Or there's a change that we think we ought to make or an innovation that we think we should be taking on board. But under all nor- normal circumstances, it would be impossible or it would be inconceivable. I would just love if now and again we could just leave those things to one side and hold on to that. Because I, I think there's always been this mantra that people hate change, people don't like change, people aren't good at change. And yet I, t- I totally agree with you, Aidan. You know, when you look back at what we've seen, we've witnessed or we've experienced ourselves, our ability to achieve so much with very little, the ability to transform and change the way we work overnight and you know all of that uh, suggests that actually human beings are really good at change when they have to and and how do you hang on to that sense of agility and um and openness to it and um just you know dropping that resistance that well i've always done it this way so i can't possibly do it any other way how do we hang on to that without having to create another crisis to make it happen you know and i think that's the challenge isn't it is that we want people to as you say to keep that open-mindedness that that uh, ability to just give it a go without their need without without there having to be a catastrophe to to force it to happen it's such a good point about about the catastrophe having forced it to happen and is there some way that you could that you could bottle the benefits of that without, as you say, having to have another uh, another catastrophe? Um, and I think uh, there, uh, there's a thought that I had that in some ways there's there's going to have to be give and take on that because I mean I know from talking to people that um, that the benefit that people are experiencing there, there's a lot of challenge that goes with being remote and working from home all the yeah. time and there are a lot of people who I know are frankly climbing up the walls. Yeah. <laughs> and really want to be sort of back in the office space, but there are certain benefits, or at least for some people, there are benefits that go with it. So I've never heard anybody complaining about not having to commute, for example. <laughs> yeah. um, I was talking to somebody in the last couple of days who was saying the, the, the joy of being able to spend more time with their children, and whether their kids think that or not is another question, <laughs> that they're, they're just really enjoying that. And I think the, the, there's going to be a really interesting balance when we do start to return to some kind of normal, when companies and and businesses sort of want that normal to look like, let's say, for example, people coming back into the office, which is a sensible thing, and I I understand why, but that we balance that with the benefits that people have or feel they have had through this experience and will probably want to hold on to. 
and how do you how do you sort of balance those things because there's no roadmap or, or case study you know we haven't we haven't had this situation before um, and i don't think you know with, with all the will in the world there's no there's no one way of doing this and we're all going to have to make it up again as we go exactly i think we're going to have to be thinking about it on an individual level but e equally each organization i think needs to say what does better normal look like for us there is no blueprint there is no best practice there's no accepted wisdom and so those leaders that are thinking about it now because i think we'll have quite a small window actually before we get back into um perhaps ingrained behaviors so actually right now if we're not thinking and talking and both on an individual level you know reflecting what we want for ourselves but also what we want for our organizations i think i think that that uh, that window is really quite small for us to have that and we should be doing it now and also i think your point about you know how do we how do we ensure we bottle what what we've experienced and use it in ways that we you know, that we'll we'll need in the future i think helping people to just reflect because not everybody reflects naturally you know they just go from one you know activity to another um is that something that you've planned at all with the leadership team to reflect on this very much so we're we're i think from quite early on actually we realized that there were that there were things we were learning about new ways of working and working remotely for example um that were going to be profoundly beneficial for an organization that is very geographically spread and an organization that's integrating at the moment and so therefore going to have to work across multiple um geographies time zones locations as as a matter of as a matter of norm if you like in the in the future um and while this particular experience was fo was forced on us there are things that we're learning about time zones and about respect for time zones um, there are things that we're learning about how you conduct a meeting where many people are remote. We've all had the experience of being the one person who was on the laptop with <laughs> yeah. in a room, right? Um, and now we all have the experience of having to be remote. And I think that they're, these are, they're, they feel like really small little things, but actually in terms of the culture of an organization, in terms yeah. of how people relate to one another in an organization, in terms of how you work with people who are in different time zones or different locations in, in a way that is, properly collaborative and open to their circumstances because they're remote or because they're in a different time zone, for example. Um, th these are incredibly valuable lessons that are not specific to coronavirus. They're absolutely lessons that we will take with us or continue to take with us. And um, Stan Duncan, who's our, our new um, chief people officer for, for Condonance globally, has already set up a piece of work on, on the future of, of, of how we work and the workplace, if you like, in, in Condonast. Um, we've sent a survey to staff, for example, asking them not just about their circumstances at the moment and about the return to work scenario but also asking because we want we want to find out we want to get a sense of um, people's appetite for continuing to work remotely whether that be all of the time or some of the time um, and while we haven't decided exactly what we do with that information yet i think to to gather that information now while we're all still in this circumstance yeah. and then start to plan what does that mean for us yeah, as an organization yeah. what does it mean for our workforce uh, what does it mean for how we work together and collaborate and so on? I think this is exactly the moment to to, to do that. We don't have we don't have a pre-cooked answer we do, because, as I was saying, there is no roadmap. We're going to sort of make it up, but at least we're looking to find out what people want. And there, there's no promises made, obviously, because we don't we don't know yet, and it has to it has to work. But equally, I think it's quite interesting that the old, I suppose, the old kind of um, uh, presentee mantra if you like 
Um, but if you're if you're not in the office, then I don't know that you're working. That plainly has gone away because we are all not in the office and we are all working and, and it is it is working somehow or other. Aidan, we'll leave it there because I know you you're extremely busy and I really appreciate the time you've taken. As ever, um, when I talk to you, I've always always enjoyed our, our conversations and today was no different. So take care of yourself. Thank, Thank you, you for you joining too. us. Great to join. And uh, we'll meet up for a coffee when, when things are slightly different. Look forward to it. Thanks, Lucy. Thanks, Aidan. Bye. Thanks for listening to this podcast. For more resources to help you change HR, check out the Disruptive HR Club at www disruptivehr.club